0: there are so many ways for you to pursue your passion in a way where you can make a living. So a lot of people can make a living with their full-time job and spend their evenings or free time pursuing what they really, really love. And that's okay. It's also okay for you to work part-time and then make money part-time as an entrepreneur or doing a creative job, there are so many pathways and there's no right way to do it. I don't want anybody to feel ashamed about working at Starbucks for 20 hours a week and then spending the rest of your time painting or writing or creating a podcast.
1: You're listening to Chief Executive Auntie, the podcast exploring the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Dwan Faltz. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Joanne Machin. She is an author, copy editor, and coach based in the Seattle area. We are recording this during coronavirus 2020, but she's doing pretty well. so welcome to the show, Joanne. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat. Yeah, it's social distancing, man. <laughs> yeah.
0: This is the perfect time to um, be on a podcast.
1: Exactly, because you don't have to be in the same room. So tell me what you really do.
0: What I really do, right now I wake up and eat breakfast and I spend a couple hours in existential dread (laughs) um, thinking about my freelance business because things are a little different right now. But what I really do, I spend some time. Yeah, I do a lot of time thinking about working before I actually build the momentum and get to the momentum of working. Right now, I'm balancing more copy editing work because for people who are um, freelance writers or self-published writers, they're still writing, they're still publishing. So I'm a little more heavy on that work right now what I actually do is I google a lot of questions I have about editing so a lot of editing is like putting commas where commas are supposed to be editing people's dialogue tags etc but it's also sometimes me like how do I spell 40 <laughs> <laughs> yesterday I googled can you get a confidential marriage license in the state of Nevada so fact checking and then just making sure things are spick and spam as a copy editor. As a coach, I basically talk to people. That's like my biggest thing. I'm supportive and I talk to people. In that area of my life, I'm leveraging one of a skill that I'm really proud of. I really got building relationships with people, talking people through um, career changes, making big plans and just basically saying like, you're going to be okay. We're going to make a plan. Whether you just lost your job, you're looking for another job, you're in a really difficult, toxic work environment, you're going to be okay. And a lot of people really just need um, you to hold space for them in a space where they can just tell you everything they're nervous about and have someone be like, you're completely okay. You're extremely stressed right now because you're being laid off it's going to be okay. So I tell a lot of people things are going to be okay. And I listen to a lot of people talk and then I help them work on their resume, cover letter and stuff. And then as an author, I'm sure that you can imagine 80% of the time I'm thinking about writing 20% of the time, no, 15% of the time I'm actually writing the other 5% of the time. I'm like, crying about wanting to write, but not being able to write. That 5% may actually be more like 15%, but give or take. Depends on the day. Depends (laughs) on the day about how I feel. So that's actually what I really do uh, a lot of the time. I feel like entrepreneurship 80% of the time, I'm thinking about what I want to do, and then 5% of the time, feeling halfway to a panic attack about actually doing it, and then the rest of the time, being really excited and actually executing. A lot of entrepreneurship is just being that space of, is this what I really want to do? How do I get there? And then building yourself up, building up the confidence, hyping yourself up. And then once you do it, you're like, okay, well, that was not as bad as I thought it would be.
1: At least 50, if not 70% of my time is just existential crises about what people actually want to yeah.
0: do. Yes. And I think that one of the um, best things you can do is just get to a space like how I can accelerate my existential dread so I can get to the point where I feel okay launching or executing or doing things that I actually want to do. So that's what I'm actually doing nowadays, um, juggling a lot of existential dread with actually executing and working.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you were fortunate enough to uh, leave your full-time job and go into full-time self-employment a couple months ago, right?
0: Yeah. So at the end of last year, I really wasn't jiving with my full-time job. I was working in a tiny um, HR firm, really just an office administrative project manager. So a lot of administrative work, background work. And I'm the kind of person who's really people-centered. I love new environments, changing every single day and I was in a job that was super routine and was not a good fit for me and so near mid to late December I basically was talking to my husband I was like I can't do this this is really really emotionally difficult for me because I'm getting paid enough money um, that's which is a huge privilege I have health insurance but this is existentially not good for me I could feel my soul crumbling (laughs) every day I went to work which again is a privilege to be like ex- having existential dread while being paid a lot. But I recognized that I needed to do something. So I sent my letter of resignation to my boss and said, I'm good to leave my job. And actually I told her like mid January and she scaled that back. I was like, we don't need you until mid January. So you can leave at the end of uh, December, which I was like, cool. Peace out. <laughs> okay, um, bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I did leave my job at the end of December. I have some money saved up, so I would be okay to cover rent and, um, incidentals for a few months. And at this point, it looks like we're going beyond a few months and going to keep this train running for a little while. Um, until yeah, the- I was going
1: to ask, what did you do to prepare for that transition yeah. or leap?
0: Yeah, So I win 80% of my life. I have general plans. And then I have a lot of backup plans. I have a lot of what if, plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, um, but I'm not a person who needs a lot of concrete plans set up before I take the leap. If I feel really excited, really passionate about something, I'm okay with just taking the leap and you know see what happens after that. But I really had to have a chat with my husband and we um, are child-free household. So I don't need to plan for another person and supporting another person. My husband has a job and pretty much we are a 50-50 household. So he supports his half of the income and I support my half of income and for us like if as long as you can cover your 50% and you're alive and you're good we're good to go now I was really just talking with him through like I'm gonna lose lose my job I can't file for unemployment because I'm voluntarily um, choosing to quit my job I'm gonna lose my health insurance and our household income is low enough that we can get it through the state so which is really great. I live in a state where I have subsidized healthcare, which is fantastic. I won't be paying into retirement. I really created a budget. I have a a line item budget, which is like my ideal budget, which I lived by when I was being paid full time. I was like, I have coffee on there, yoga, you know, all the miscellaneous stuff I like to buy. Like I have my coffee budget, my clothes budget and all this stuff. And then I have a bare bones budget where it's like, this is what I need to live. And I may not be living my best life, but this is going to be good. This is going to be fine. So I scaled back from my ideal life budget to my bare bones budget. And from there, I have health insurance covered. So my big major life structures were set in place for me. Again, I didn't need to send a kid to school or anything. And so we were like, okay, I have that set up. I think for me, the biggest part of this emotionally was having a vision. I'm the kind of person who needs that. Like I have my six month vision and I need a goal for the six months. And as long as I'm working towards that, then I'm feeling really good. Over time in the full-time job, I saved up about like $6,000 and that $6,000 I knew from just budgeting was going to help me last for at least five to six months And having really frank conversation about my husband, about like, this is what I'm doing. I'm copy editing. I'm coaching. I'm finishing working on my book and I don't know if that book's going to sell but we're going to try. Just making sure I have his support. And I wasn't really looking for his financial support. For me, in our relationship, that wouldn't be comfortable for me because he's working a part-time job. And I'm, you know, basically making a part-time salary at this point. And just having those conversations like, this is what I'm doing. Are you okay with supporting me? And of course, super supportive. And if ever needed financial support, he'd be all on board. I also made a worst case scenario. For me, I love my mother-in-law. I love his mom when we started dating when we got married I was like I'd be totally okay moving in with your mom by the way <laughs> it doesn't even need to be a worst case scenario I would move in with
1: <laughs> let's just do it anyway
0: <laughs> I love my mother-in-law and my mom's also in the area his dad's in the area so there's a lot of worst case scenarios where we have that back plan luckily we haven't ever had to think about that at the moment. So uh, for me, again, having that financial support, having that conversation with my husband, having that vision about this is what is good for me. And this is what I need has been really, really important
1: yeah that's awesome I feel like I run into two types of people the people who just get stuck in the weeds of how to do it and then the people who are like I have a vision I have no clue what to do but I have that Um, I mean but it it sounds like you have both you made a plan you talked it through you leaped but you weren't just jumping into nothing you knew what you were going towards that's really really cool
0: yeah and Uh, my mindset is that anything I don't know how to do we can learn how to do I can google how to set up an accounting system and learn and google how to do digital marketing. It may take a little bit of time, but I have more time now, and I can put my time into learning how to do that.
1: I was going to say, if we're talking percentage time, ninety-nine percent <laughs> of freelancing is just googling things.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like when I was doing content writing, I was just like, "What is the SEO?" And when they're like, "You need SEO as a qualification," I'm like, "I'm sure I could learn how to do this. Just give it a couple of days."
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the most important traits because you're never going to know everything there is to know about any field, no matter how long you've been doing it. It's the willingness to learn and the willingness to just like kick the tires until it works. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. I was building a website yesterday. And there was some bit of code that I was like, I've never seen this before. But I looked at it for a while and tried a couple things and they didn't work and just kept trying stuff. I'm like, okay, now it works. Not that I know the language now, which I don't. But yeah. I was able to like, bash my way through it, which I think is the most important quality for our freelancers. Can you just hack your way through to what you need?
0: That's the secret to web development. I built my own yes. website. I just did things until things broke, and then I fixed <laughs> it. And then I Googled it, and I was like, "I've got a website. It looks workable. I'm good to go."
1: Exactly, exactly. So, did you have any background in career coaching or copy editing prior to going out on your own? Kind of. So I worked in higher education. I
0: worked with college students. I have so many stories that I love to share with. um, So I worked as a residence director. I basically oversaw a dorm. And I have so many stories I'd love to share with you. That sounds like my worst nightmare. (laughs) It was such a great job. I loved it. I have so many different like wild stories. So I worked a year in career services after residence life. And then I worked at an HR firm that like focused on career transitions. So I built the foundation and built the basics. And from there, a lot of the same things are transferable to coaching. A lot of coaches are certified. I'm not certified yet, but if you're looking for a coach, I don't think you necessarily need a coach as a certification. If you have experience working with people in advising and coaching, I have a lot of that from working with college students who are very lost and very afraid and very anxious 90% of the time. And then from copy editing, I actually started editing because I have a background in English language and literature. And so I know a little bit about, yay, English majors. If you read enough, if you write enough, you know English intuitively from a grammar perspective. And then I decided to sign up for a certification through UC San Diego online, which you can complete completely online over the course of a year. And let me tell you, if you are like a native English speaker... Taking a course on grammar as an English native speaker will blow your mind if all you've ever done was like learn English through like osmosis, like you and me, through the K-12 program, through college. You learn what writing and reading is through experiencing it. But when you learn writing through a structured process, you're like, I never knew that was what a semicolon was supposed to be <laughs> until you learn it in class. And so I learned so much of that program that I could have guessed. I could probably, in most cases, guess where a comma should or should not be, but I could not tell you why. (laughs) But that class really helped me solidify a lot of the mechanics of grammar stuff, as well as the mechanics, industry, and standards around copy editing. And so I finished that um, in December as well. And that's my background in copy editing. And I started copy editing with my friends who were applying to school like college and were like I have my personal statement I don't know what to do with it can you please fix it for me and as someone again who does a lot of writing does a lot of reading helping people organize their thoughts and then making sure their thoughts are clear and comes through helping people tell a story what is something that I am really good at I would like to think
1: there was a class at my university. It's going to be the nerdiest thing I've ever said in my life. But there was a class when I was in college, and it was not just English grammar; it was the history of English grammar. Oh and god. I wanted to take it so bad. Oh my god! That was- but you're right, because I mean, schools don't teach grammar anymore. Yeah. I, I think I had like a week of outright grammar instruction in like sixth yeah, grade yeah. or something like that, and the rest is just like, okay, just pick it up. I have a almost four year old. And he's really interested in learning how to read, and so we're spelling stuff out. And I'm like, "Who made this language?" <laughs> <And> <laughs> oh that's like God. the whole
0: thing with rough and dough and oh my gosh, like dough. yeah, like
1: rough, r o u g f. And he's like, and he's like what does that say, mommy? I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry we speak the language that makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it's,
0: it's weird. I don't think I've ever had anybody explain to me, this is why you use a comma. You just
1: learn to put... You just learn to put it there. Yeah. And yeah. then
0: you're like, I don't know why I put it there, but it's there. It looks right. I'm good to go.
1: So do you typically work with clients who are in the academic space or where do you get your clients from?
0: My first two clients were actually from the academic space. Now it's because a lot of my um, circles, because I worked in higher education, was from the academic space. One of my first projects was an economic thesis, which was really cool because the client was writing about crowdsourcing. So I learned a lot about the economics of crowdsourcing. So I do a little bit in the academic sphere, but a lot of what I focus on right now is fiction particularly I specialize in romance because that's a lot of what I read that's a lot of what I write and a lot of my clients from the fiction space actually just come from me building networks so one of my favorite things about the internet is just meeting people and I join new Facebook groups every week of my life because I just love being in Facebook groups being around other people who have similar interests and a lot of time people are like I need an editor I'm like I am happen to have free time next month. Here's my website. So that's actually how I got one of my very first clients ever, November 2018. I was in a romance writers group and this person was like, my editor just canceled. I need something edited in a week. I need this book edited. And I messaged her and I was like, hey, um, you know, I'm just starting editing. And if you don't mind someone who's a little, you know, greener. I can finish this for you in a week. And she's like, that's great. I'll send you the chapters as I'm writing. So literally she was writing it and sending me the chapters as she was writing And I was editing and I'll send me it back. And she's like, oh, you're so great. You are so fast. You do so much. And I've continued working with that client as well. And the other clients have literally just been like, I saw your name on Facebook in this group. And he said you had an opening and I was looking for an editor. So here you go. But a lot of the academic sphere, nonfiction. Personal essay has been word of mouth. when like a friend of a friend said, you edit essays. I'm not very good at writing. Can you please help me? So that's been really helpful. A lot of my other referrals for career coaching has been word of mouth as well. One thing that you learn really fast in entrepreneurship is if you talk about yourself enough and the things you do, people will just label you as a person who does stuff so for example uh, i'm sure that if you talk enough like i am a podcast person who talks about asian americans in entrepreneurship you keep saying that enough on facebook and twitter people will just say that she's a person who does podcasts you know whether like regardless of how much or how little almost every week every other week i just told my facebook community or the people i know hey i'm an editor i do career coaching i help people with their resumes people be like oh joanne's writing romance novels or joanne is doing editing and so the next time they have a friend who's like i have a personal essay that needs help they can refer you
1: i need to be better about that i just assume that everybody knows what i do because everyone's paying attention to me which is like the most narcissistic thing ever (laughs) Oh, surely everybody yeah. is following me and knowing exactly what I'm doing at any given time. I need to do that better. We met through Twitter.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you just keep telling people what you do and what you want to be known for, people will naturally just make those connections in their brain. Like, oh, she wants that person who writes romance novels or she wants the person who does copy or you know, Jennifer has that really cool podcast or she builds websites. So people will make those connections if you say it
1: enough. Yeah. So speaking of your book... Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I've been writing romance for years. I haven't published anything until this past year, but I've been writing romance for years. Um, A lot of co-writing with my friend, Sarah. And so I knew for a really, really long time, one of my life goals and dreams is to be a New York Times bestseller. Why New York Times bestseller? Absolutely no reason except that I can say that I'm New York Times bestseller. <laughs> uh, I actually recently learned what it means to be a New York best, uh, Times bestseller, and there's a lot of smoke and mirrors around it. It's literally Ooh. just you making a certain number of sales within the span of a week um and there's a lot of discussion about what that actually means but right. yeah so google it if you have some time to look it up it's really interesting there's a lot of controversy around that but i just want to be a bestseller new york times bestseller usa bestseller because it's important for me to have an impact and of course a lot of us want to make money totally i could acknowledge that and so for a real long time since I was in college, maybe even before college, I knew that I wanted to write a book and I wanted to publish that book and have it become a bestseller. And I'm sure a lot of writers would sympathize that we love talking about writing. <laughs> I love talking about writing and I talk about writing all the time. How often I write less than i like to. <laughs> so my friend Sarah and I met on Neopets neopets shut yeah. up i started my
1: entrepreneurship career on neopets uh, designing yes. stupid logos yes
0: <laughs> logos designing logos that's how i learned <laughs> to use rudimentary um, html and css
1: i oh, built my own websites and stuff we it must be pretty. like long lost twins or
0: something. <laughs> yes so i i learned to use css and neopets. html because i wanted pretty websites and the i'm not saying pets. like i have any competency <laughs> But I built a website and it you looked did. really bad, but I did it myself. Anyways, we'll talk about Neopets another time. That's a whole different <laughs> thing. I've heard it's going mobile, which is like another thing no. I didn't need. Um, anyways, so I met my co-writer, Sarah Neopets, and we did a lot of writing together for like years, like five to six, seven years before we ever like seriously contemplated publishing anything. So I've been doing writing and I knew that I wanted to write a book. I didn't actually attempt to write a book. Until this past year, I started in September with an idea. Um, September and...
1: 2019?
0: Yes, September 2019. and
1: I had. Wow, you're fast. <laughs> oh, thank you.
0: Um, I started September 2019. I started it, and then I got to NaNoWriMo, Read NaNoWriMo, which is November. And I was like, I'm going to do November. I don't write my whole book in November. That didn't happen. <laughs> I wrote some words, but not 50,000 words. And then... When I quit my job, I was more than halfway, and then I finished in February 2020. Yeah. That's uh, I amazing. <laughs> I hope that whoever's my agent or publisher doesn't ever hear me hear the story. I finished February 2020. I pitched the book on Twitter on February 2014. Um <laughs> On February twenty-fourteenth, um, my tweet was one of the top trending tweets with the hashtag #KissPitch, which is the event I was um, pitching it at. You saw it. Um, mm-hmm. I was I was blown away. I was not expecting any kind of response. And then on February twenty-fourteenth, I finished revising my book. <laughs> um, again, I hope my agent never listens to this if I ever get an agent. But I finished revising. I don't recommend anybody doing this. Don't. <laughs> I literally, so I was pitching it and while I was pitching it, I literally was on my phone on that day, literally um, refreshing my phone every five minutes because every five minutes I'd have a new notification. I like, I would check if it was an agent requesting my submission. And so I was literally like a phone in hand. I was like, so like on edge that day, pitched it and now I'm querying. And so I'm still in that process. I'm still revising. I'm like not not revising still, but revising another draft because you should always be revising and making a draft pattern. The title is Game Changer. It is about two people who meet online playing video games and basically it's kind of like a World of Warcraft. But I can't use World of Warcraft because it's trademark. Sure. i made up a game kind of like World of Warcraft. They met playing video games, they become friends, they stay friends for like eight years and then they finally meet for the first time when he and the main character benji invites the other main character laura to his best friend's wedding at this point laura's in her late 20s benji is in his early 30s and so it's about them meeting for first time in person but laura is a game designer and benji works in business development at a big game company big conglomerate like electronic arts except i didn't call it electronic arts because trademark and it's about something that happens quite often in the game industry and in many other industries where her tiny little indie studio is acquired by a big conglomerate his conglomerate and he basically made the merger happen and she loses her job she's laid off because of the acquisition and She uh, spends so she's like, I'm laid off, what do I do? And she's been working on her own game since college. She says, I'm gonna try and sell my game. And so they meet, and she finds out that he's the one who signed the contract that Mm. happened. And it's about them working through that while being at a wedding together and still working through feelings about like, I'm really attracted to this person, but I have ethical you know, moral obligations to what he does. And he's like, oh shit, he's coming to realization that his job literally is the reason people lose their jobs. And so there's that kind of like moral kind of internal conflict there, but there's also a lot of external conflicts with his family, with his evil ex and his boss and a lot of things that she goes through in the book as well. And so the whole book takes place like over the course of three days. So it's very, very fast paced. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That is so much fun. I can't wait yeah. to read it.
0: <laughs> I loved it because basically I started writing it because I was like, I love romance and I need to write about things I love. And I was like, video games work. I used to work at a school here in Seattle that is basically a technical school about game development. And so I had a lot of glimpses into the industry and what happens in the in a working of the industry while being a game developer, as I imagine can be very um, competitive. So I was like, romance, throw some tropes together really needed to write a book that had both two Asian-American leading characters. That's my thing. i have done writing white people, basically. And I was like, this is my quest. My quest is to write a romance, get it published, and have two leading characters that look like me and who also integrate a lot of issues that I went through about immigration, about language Mm. barrier, intercultural generational issues, basically late stage capitalism, (laughs) Um, and what it means to be a millennial in this kind of world where our work and our personal life is mixed up so much. So yeah, it's very much an own voices book and I do integrate a lot of my own experiences as an immigrant into it.
1: Yeah, I love the intersection of all those different topics. And yet it's still a romance. I think what I really appreciate about the moment that we're in, at least in terms of Asian American representation, we have these movies and books that have these Asian American characters and they're about race without being about race like like it's not a big heavy thing it's just like this is just what our life is like and yeah we deal with this on an everyday basis like my work in very 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 slow progress yeah (laughs) it's gonna hit sexuality it's gonna hit immigrant it's gonna hit racism it's gonna hit all those things but it's not about those things yeah it's just in there i don't know whether to categorize mine as a romance or not is it your pokemon
0: go story no not
1: my pokemon (laughs) go although that one i'm still cooking on that one that one will definitely be a romance but the one i'm working on right now i think i don't know But the more I think about it, the more elements of romance I see in there, but it's not strictly a happy ending. So I don't know. I haven't read enough of the romance genre. So I don't really know the standards.
0: (laughs) So many recommendations if you need it. So I yes, so I really want to touch upon how do you write about race without writing about race. And there are books out there that is about race. It's about Mm -hmm. being in an interracial relationship. And the author will make it extremely clear as they'll beat it into your head. This is about race. This is my stance on race. This is what I'm doing. And that's perfectly fine. Right. I think that for me, I really don't want my books to be a performance of my marginalization. Right. Right. Like, like, this is all the ways I have been marginalized because I, as an individual who's cisgendered, straight, um, able body, like I don't, uh, I don't feel like I have the worst case of it. I, I don't think I've very frequently been the target of overt racism. The book talks quite often about like microaggressions there's a lot of microaggressions in the book that talk about things we go through when for example she is one of the only Asian people at the wedding and one instance she runs into someone she's like oh you must be with the other Asian people who are here <laughs> and she's like that was some racist ass shit you just said <laughs> um, so the book is a about those microaggressions and I try not to t- write about race by saying I'm writing about race but by saying, look at these people in these situations, and these are things that happen to them, and hopefully by watching the characters react to those situations, the reader's like, oh man, this is a really difficult situation. It's hard to be the only woman in a male-dominated industry and having everyone basically doubt your existence or your competency, or it's really difficult being the only person of color in a room full of white folks, for example. Um, and all those kind of tiny things that build up to them a lot when that's mm-hmm. or, um, constantly your personal experience. So I think that's the way I want to approach it. These are just two people who are Chinese American and you know they face a couple of things in their life that are really difficult, but this book is a romance and it's fluffy and it's really cute and their ending is really, really happy. And I, I don't try to perform my marginalization because I don't think people of color need to constantly be talking about the marginalization for people to believe that their lives are made difficult by the intersections of their identity.
1: Yeah. And we're also so much more than, oh, yeah. than our so-called disadvantages. And Oh, yeah. And there is a time and place to talk about those for sure. But I think, was it last year seeing Always Be My Maybe? It's just like the primary colors of my childhood are on the screen. But it's not this like big, sad lecture about immigration and parents and blah, blah, blah. It's there. You see it like the moment where she's talking to her parents about how they were never there for her. And I was like, oh, that hurts. (laughs) But the whole movie is not this big downer about that because our whole lives are not one big downer. These things are in there, but we also fall in love. We... Get married, we have conflict, like it, all of that other stuff is in there too.
0: Yeah, exactly. I was talking to another um, writer friend I have. She's also a person of color. And one thing I talked about is like, I think it's okay for people to see Chinese American people just exist as other American people do. They Go to diners and they have a cup of coffee. They fight with their parents. They go and get gas. You know, they get their flu shots. They eat a burger at Denny's at midnight. I don't want to, again, like ostracize people like she's Chinese American. I have a degree in English. I don't speak Chinese at all. And if you probably spoke Chinese to me, I probably would not understand you. I'd be very intimidated. So I think there's another side. There are Chinese American people who are Americans who have an extremely normal American experience. And there are also other Chinese. Chinese American people who speak fluent Cantonese or Mandarin who are extremely connected to their heritage and their heritage are a huge part of their life but if I'm writing about my experience I pretty much have a pretty tangential relationship with um, being Chinese and so I want that line between immigrants and Americans who are born here to be much more thinner I want to explore that with you yeah yeah
1: one of the things that I'm trying to explore so my main character is a well i guess it depends on how you count it my main character her parents immigrated to the u.s she was born in the states Mm -hmm. and now she's interacting with her college age son so that makes him third generation again depending on how you count it but i don't know very many asian americans whose parents did not immigrate and so i'm like okay so do all the stereotypical Asian immigrant parent things, does that get diluted as the generations go yeah. by? And I've asked about this in a couple groups. Somebody sent me a short story they wrote where the the father is also born in the US, yeah. um, Asian American. And I'm reading this and I'm like, he sounds just like my immigrant dad. <laughs> I think it's just a dad thing, not an immigrant, non-immigrant thing. So that's just been something that I'm still trying to figure out, and I guess my kid will tell you in 20 years whether I've done it right or not.
0: Yeah, so that's such an interesting thing about when immigrants move here, what they choose to retain culturally um, and what they choose not to retain culturally. That's an extremely personal choice, and I see it completely varied, right? There are some folks who I only speak English. I really don't know how to speak, you know, Bangladesh or Japanese or you know, Spanish or whatever. And sometimes
1: it's not a choice. I think Yeah, absolutely. Like, my cousins were born in the U.S. like in the 70s. And I think the pressure to assimilate was much stronger back then. And then my uncle was in academia as well. So they basically only speak English. And then by the time my parents had me, they were also in a place where there were some more Chinese Americans around. And so we were able to retain the language. You don't always get a choice over yeah what you hold on to and what you can't
0: and so i think another example is like my mom doesn't speak english at all she just did not have the opportunity to learn it wasn't something Mm. that she was given or was able to retain so that impacts people too if she wasn't able to learn english i think that's a huge factor in her not being able to get a lot of more white-collar jobs and move up professionally um so it's very different, a lot of different experiences. So I, that's why before I started writing this book, I asked a lot of my Asian American friends and I was like, this is an own voices book. So it's about me writing from my experience, but also like how I have the struggle about like, I don't want for people to read this and be like, yes, this is the Chinese American experience. These two people. Right. This is it, right? So I asked people, what was really prevalent in your experience, either as an immigrant or growing up in the first generation or second generation? What was prevalent in yours? And as I was reading other people's responses, I felt like their experience was so personal that I was like, I I can't possibly write about their experience because it's about them. I can't write from that because I didn't have experience with that particular person. So that was also a struggle. I was like, I write about mine, but I don't want people to read this and be like, this is the Chinese American experience, right? Right. I also don't want to write about other people's experience in a way um, that isn't sensitive.
1: Yeah. I challenge everybody to spend an entire year reading books by people who are in a different identity group than you. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun. It is. It really is. I did the Year of Asian Reading Challenge last year, and I thought I would have a hard time finding books by Asians and Asian Americans. And it was really easy. I just had never looked for it before because I was never taught to look for it. I majored in English and read dead white men for four years. Like, <laughs> It's really hard.
0: It's a, such a reflex being like, oh, this must be really hard. But there's a whole world out there of other Asian oh, yeah. people writing. Maybe not writing in English. They could be writing English, but writing other languages that could be translated. And I always forget that because we're um, both of our educations against like so Eurocentric. Asia's the biggest fucking continent in the world. There are people writing books out there. If you spent the entire year reading manga, you'd read like way more Asian people than most people. <laughs> and there's so much out there that we just don't uh, reflexively think of because our educations, our upbringing is so much around like these dead old, old white guys.
1: Yeah. And I don't know about you, but that's why I'm so motivated to write this story because nobody else is going to write about Taiwanese-American, ex-evangelical, all these interests, Like nobody is going to like, very few people are going to have that combination of things that they're going to write about. But there's so many people out there who have that combination or some piece of that. So that's my motivation anyway. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Have you read The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang?
1: No, but it's on my oh, TBR pile. It's okay.
0: so good. I'm, I'm rereading it right now. That was in of me writing because um, the main male character is half them, knees, and half Swedish, and his perspective talks about him going home and his mom peeling fruit for him and his family as the ultimate Chinese American love language is my mom peeling fruit for me, and it's dropped in there so seamlessly that you read about it and you're like, this is cool. You get this different perspective of what life in a different family is. I didn't see that. I didn't ever see on TV or in movies about when i entered household i had to take off my shoes and why all my white friends thought that was weird i took off my shoes the quiz question was the first time i saw that and i was like i can have asian people in love stories falling in love too and they can have sexy times and be funny and have fun so i'm really hoping that the end product of this is you know people out there pick it up and they read game changer and they're like oh my god this person can't Barely communicate with their parents, and uh, they have this emotional baggage around their inability to speak Chinese. That's me too. I have that conversation with a few friends, and I hope that that conversation comes up. And I hope that someday someone will e- email me at my author email and be like, "Joanne, this book made me cry." Or this is the same exact issue as my parents. I can barely talk to my parents because I wasn't taught Chinese. My parents don't understand English. I know English. That's my dream to give voice to those things that a lot of. Um, Chinese American immigrants go through and hopefully it resonates with someone.
1: I think it absolutely will. I cannot wait to read your book. Oh,
0: thank you. I hope that someday you'll be able to go to Target and pick it up and then tell everybody around you to go
1: buy it as well. I'll put it on my calendar for 2025. My book is set in 2025 or at least in 2025 in order to have some, in order to have a prior event lineup at 1999. And now I'm like, Ah shit! I gotta talk about the coronavirus (laughs) pandemic of twenty twenty. So,
0: all of my books takes place in a magical world where it's exactly (laughs) like our world, except Trump was never elected and there's no epidemic sweeping the country. And I wanted—I
1: think in the draft, I said President Warren, (laughs) just just to have that in there. And you know what? maybe we still will in 2025 so there <laughs> yeah
0: yeah absolutely that was such a it's such a big thing to write books right now i know that the author of red white and blue which is a book about president sun and the Prince of England, I think, um, falling in love. Um, She wrote that book and published it almost right exactly as Trump was elected. And she was talking about having this moment where she was driving on the freeway and she had to pull over because she had to break down about like, how do I write a book about the first Latina president? Being a woman and being Latina, having a son that was gay, and then having in this moment of him falling in love with another man, it, as a prince of England, and what that meant culturally, right? What does it mean to rewrite this history that has been so detrimental to so many people? And really grappling with like, how do I deal with this? And she went ahead and she published it and the book is wildly uh, popular and people love it. I haven't read it yet, but uh, it's really interesting. Like, do we ignore this pandemic? I also have another friend who wrote a book that took place in England and she's like, how do I write about it when Brexit is happening? Right. (laughs) How do I, do I integrate this? Do I pretend Brexit never happened? So how do we write about books in real life when there's a socially distancing There's a lot of discussion in romance about this would be great for a lot of forced proximity books. (laughs) You know, like you hooked up with someone on a one night stand and now you're quarantined together. What do you do?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, it might even work out because I need my college boy to experience a microaggression from his future father-in-law. So I have plenty of fodder for that now. God, yes too soon i don't know
0: <laughs> right that's another thing like is this too soon i know right. that a lot of agents and editors right now are like please don't send me a pandemic story this is the last thing i want to read about as a reader i'm like i don't want to read another pandemic story that's right really but tough.
1: i think it's one thing to skim a topic and have it just be part of the background which i think is what is going to end up happening with mine assuming we all survive <laughs> um, but it's totally different if it's like I have a story about a disease. Okay, right. let's maybe put that over here for a minute.
0: Right, you can't be like, oh, the ronies of 2020. What a time that was when I was in college. I survived a pandemic and I was kicked out of my dorm.
1: Yeah, all the admissions essays in tw- in the fall are going to be like, so what <laughs> I did during quarantine. It's like, no, Jimmy, we don't oh care. My God. You better uh, not have done anything I stupid.
0: I didn't even think about that, those poor college admissions officers.
1: <laughs> you have a plethora of knowledge about a lot of different fields. What advice would you give to other Asian Americans who want to pursue a creative career, particularly one in writing, just want to pursue an unconventional career? that's a hot topic as
0: an Asian person or Asian American, right? (laughs) Conventional careers. So in in my life, I never wanted to be an engineer, a lawyer, or a doctor. (laughs) So conventional careers were out of the door for me. I couldn't be a lawyer, accountant, business person, or any of that. And so my family was pretty like, do whatever you want to do. As long as you survive college, and you graduate, you make money, you're okay. I think that just to remember, there are so many different pathways to do what you are passionate for. And you can still do what you're passionate for, even if people don't pay you for it. And that sucks. I know that feeling. I will write stories whether or not someone pays me for it. But there are pathways. There are so many different pathways as an entrepreneur for you to get your voice out there and for you to survive. Under late-stage capitalism, a lot of artists, their values not inherently mirrored in what they're paid. But there are so many ways for you to pursue your passion in a way where you can make a living. So a lot of people can make a living, you know, with their full-time job and spend their evenings or free time pursuing what they really, really love. And that's okay. It's also okay for you to work part-time and then make money part-time as an entrepreneur or doing a creative job. There are so many pathways and there's no right way to do it. I don't want anybody to feel ashamed about working at Starbucks for 20 hours a week and then spending the rest of your time painting or writing or creating a podcast. There's no shame in you doing what you need to do to save your creative soul, for you to make a living so there's a roof over your head. I think that it's really important for you to do what your soul wants because there's only so many years we have we spend in our lives doing what we need to do um, before we're too tired to do it. Our bodies um, and our brains run out of fuel to do what we need to do. I also want, just on the creative side, for people to find their voice and to really use your really unique and distinctive voice as a way for you to get your creativity out there, your experiences are so unique to who you are and you as a creative there's no one out in the world who can replicate what you can create as just a human being your brain is one in a, millions and millions and millions there's no one out there who can replicate what you can create and that in itself has inherent value and because of that someone out there will love what you write. And as long as you remember that your voice has value and value doesn't mean someone's paying for you for it, but it has value because you exist, because it's so unique, it's so individual, because people somewhere out there will connect with you and connect with your story. Your story needs to be out there. Your creation needs to be out there. You know, whatever it is that you create, it needs to be out there because you are providing inherent value because you exist, because it's unique, because you're going to give someone Uh, something that they can connect to and really love so those are I think my two tidbits be flexible around your goals and be able to just really own what you need to do to put a roof over your head put food on the table but while also preserving your creative spirit and also just understanding that your voice is so inherently valuable and worthy just because of being who you are no one in the world can replicate who you are as a person
1: I love that. Thank you so much for being here, Joanne. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. Where can people find you online? And I'm on read previews most- of your book. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> so no previews of my book yet because I'm creating, but I do like leak teasers and stuff on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me at Hey Joe Machin. So that's H E Y J O M A C H I N. I'm on Twitter and Instagram most often.
1: Awesome, and I'll put those in the show notes. Thank you so much again. Of
0: course. Thank you for
1: having me. Thanks for tuning in to Chief Executive Auntie. You can find show notes, resource links, and more Auntie Rants at Anti.com. That's Chief Executive A-U-N-T-I-E dot See you next time.